Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. While you're listening, go to arcpodnet.com slash members and support our efforts. Let's get to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 178. On today's show, we talk to Dr. Spencer Pelton about his work on a Paleo-Indian hematite quarry. Let's dig a little deeper. Spencer Pelton received his PhD from the University of Wyoming in 2018 and became the Wyoming State Archaeologist in November 2019. Spencer primarily researches the early prehistory of the High Plains and Rocky Mountains, but also maintains interests in global human dispersal and the peopling of the Americas. Spencer conducts excavations at several Paleo-Indian sites in Wyoming, most recently at the Powers II Red Ochre Quarry, the Laprell Clovis site, and the Sisters Hill site. Spencer lives in Laramie, Wyoming with his wife Haley and their dog Cashew. Welcome to the show, everybody. Rachel, how's it going? Pretty good. We are still in Long Beach, Washington. That's right. We were in there for the last episode, weren't we? Yeah, Yeah. we were. It seems like we've been moving quickly a lot lately, but this time we're in the same place for two recordings, which is cool. I know. Nice. Nice. Yeah, we'll be moving the next couple of weeks, but then we're in one spot for two weeks. So should be fun. We don't want to waste too much time here. We have got a guest today. We don't often have guests on this show, and so it's pretty exciting. But this guest has been on the Archaeology Podcast Network, I would say, a number of times, <laughs> but on one <laughs> other show. I'll try to link to all the episodes that, that uh, yeah. Spencer's been on in the Life and Ruins podcast in the in the show notes for this. So go check that out. The Life and Ruins show, is it's three guys, well, usually three, and it's a great show to check out. If you haven't branched over to that show yet, please do go check it out. But we'll have links to Spencer's episodes over there and probably a link just to the show over there as well. But as I mentioned, and as we mentioned in the intro, let's bring on Dr. Spencer Pelton. Spencer, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks, Chris and Rachel, for having me. No worries. No worries. So we were first alerted to this topic when Rachel actually found the related article in Smithsonian Magazine. But the original article that we want to talk to you about is in PNAS, and we'll link to all this in the show notes. But it's called In Situ Evidence for Paleo-Indian Hematite Quarrying at the Powers 2 site in Wyoming. So why don't we set the stage and just talk about you know, what is the powers to site? What, how long have you guys been digging there? What's its, you know, significance? We'll get into the whole hematite thing a little later. Long story short, powers two is the, the oldest hematite quarry in the Americas. And uh, it's been known for nice. quite a long time, several decades now. And it's always been this kind of anomaly, at least in the, the paleo Indian research community. Cause mm-hmm. it's just this pile of really phenomenal artifacts at the base of the Palis slope, mm. kind of interspersed with a bunch of these nodules of, of red ochre, red paint. Mm-hmm. And uh, up until we did excavations there, starting about 2017, it was always this kind of big question mark. Is this actually a hematite quarry? What are all these artifacts doing here in these huge quantities? So our goals in 2017 were just to prove that it was indeed an intact hematite quarry. And I think we succeeded in doing that. How long have excavations been going on here? Excavations really were initiated back in the 1980s by, by George Frizen, but um, he right. at that time just did some really limited testing around the margins of the site where surfers collected a bunch of artifacts that have been redeposited. And then a landowner dispute basically shut out archaeologists from the site for almost three decades uh, until, oh, wow. until the early 2000s. And when George Frizen and another gentleman named George Siemens were able to get back in there and do some basically salvage archaeology of the Talus deposit. There's all this, all these Paleo-Indian artifacts interspersed with uh, historic glass and sawn bone, and pieces of railroad ties and that kind of thing, all in this redeposited context uh, below the site. And that started going on 2014. Uh, and then in 2017 mm-hmm. uh, is when I was asked to go back in 
and actually put in some controlled excavations and what we thought at the time was the intact portion of the site and that ended okay. up ended up playing out. So we, we excavated there for a total of four years, going from surface down to bedrock, and then we called it quits and it's there for uh, any other archaeologists that want to get something out of the site. Mm-hmm. So you said that you were originally alerted to the site because it's sort of at a at the bottom of a talus slope. Can you explain exactly like what that means? Because I'm trying to visualize it. Is it like a out of context artifacts, basically, and you didn't know where they had come from? Or what did that look like? It's a really interesting situation. But I should note that archaeologists were actually first notified about this Way back in the early 80s, when a guy named Wayne Powers, uh, the namesake of the site, brought brought it to the attention of Dennis Stanford at the Smithsonian Museum. Mm. Powers had actually found the first artifacts from the site way back in the late 1930s, early 1940s. Powers is an interesting guy because he actually participated in the Smithsonian excavations at the Lindenmeyer Folsom site in Colorado, which is a pretty famous oh, wow. Indian site. Mm-hmm. And, and really, what, what happened was Powers contributed to that research crew as a high school student. And then he became a, a wrestling coach at this mining town called Sunrise hmm. after he got out of high school. And at the time, he would have been one of the only people, maybe one of 10 people in the entire West who really knew what these early Billy Indian artifacts looked like. And he was the first one to find artifacts at the hmm. site, but didn't alert archaeologists to that fact until the early 80s. So getting back to your question, though, the site's in a really odd situation. It's not somewhere where you would typically look, say, if you were just doing an archaeological survey. It's kind of perched on the side of a hill above mm-hmm. this, this broad valley. And what happened was when mining operations commenced in this town of Sunrise in the late 1800s, they put on this railroad right in front of the site, right below it. And it looks like they clipped the margin of it. Hmm. Ah. Which initiated this period of erosion where stuff was just kind of pouring out of the side of the intact uh, so this gotcha. site is, I mean, is, is literally right in the middle of this large mining district and town site. And it's, it's kind of a miracle, kind of serendipitous that it was preserved at all. I mean, just, just over the hill from it, there's a massive glory hole mining operation. That's, <laughs> you know, a quarter mile across, and, I don't know, 800 feet deep or something crazy like that. Jeez. And so that this site survived at all is, is pretty, pretty remarkable in and of itself. Crazy. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, along those lines, I'm just curious, you know, we're going to, we're going to obviously talk more about the site later, but I got to know, I mean, we're talking about this because of the hematite quarry that's there and we'll get into what hematite is a little bit later, but was this, do you think, let's just get in getting straight to the punchline. Was this just a site for the hematite quarry? Cause I know a lot of tools and things were found and probably people were hanging out there for a while while they're quarrying this stuff. But do you think that a more long-term habitation was established here maybe because of the quarry or for some other reasons? Yeah, I, I think in general, uh, this, this region of Wyoming is called the Hartville uplift is super dense with really early American uh, archaeological sites. Uh, most famously, the Hell Gap site is just mm-hmm. about th- uh, five miles away from the Powers II site. This really wow. dense campsite reoccupied for about 6,000 years during the earliest periods of human occupation in the Americas. And you're right, the Powers II site has an enormous number of points, but also just chipstone tools, you know, faces, debitage, mm-hmm. hammer stones, just everything you would typically find in the campsite for Paleo-Indian forager. So I, I suspect, very strongly suspect that there was a a large uh, reoccupied campsite nearby. And I also suspect that it was destroyed by the large iron mining operation that happened there. The historic mm. era. If it, if it wasn't, then it's, it's pretty deeply buried somewhere in that valley and we haven't been able to find it yet. But I don't think people okay. were camping directly on top of the hematite quarry. It's a really steep hill slope on top of some really thick rocks. It's just not yeah. a great place to pitch a tent really. But I think within you know, a couple hundred yards couple hundred meters there's probably a pretty big campsite either we haven't discovered or that was destroyed by the early historic mining operations there well this sounds like given the age of it which we haven't discussed yet but we will in a little bit given that its location in in wyoming and the and the age of it i imagine there was water fairly nearby with the you know glaciers melting and all that right there's water there's also this is the harville up was really this the first place where you can get fuel wood and water in any abundance Mm -hmm. as you come west off of the Great Plains. It's this kind of foothills of the Rocky Mountains, the eastern foothills of the Rocky Mountains. So as the foragers were utilizing the high plains of Wyoming and 
South Dakota, Montana. This would have been very much kind of a, a little island in the plains is the term we often use for features like this yeah. where you could get out of the wind, you could have fuel wood to burn. There's probably also game hanging out there. And, and on top of that, the Hartville Uplift has these beautiful exposed seams of chert and quartzite all over it. Most famously, the Spanish Diggings Quartzite Quarry is nearby, mm-hmm. which is pretty well known nationally for its, its quartzite, its really high quality quartzite. Uh, so it just it had everything really foragers living at the end of the Pleistocene wanted. It had shelter, stone tools, raw material, probably wild game and pretty big abundance. And of course, hematite as well. Well, and I was going to say, no time like the present, 11 minutes into the yeah. podcast. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about what hematite is. <laughs> so what is hematite and, and what did early people use it for? Hematite is just red ochre. It comes in a lot of different forms. If you ever, uh, like, like I did, I grew up playing in creeks in East Tennessee. You pick up things you call mm-hmm. paint rocks. Mm-hmm. And it's just these nice little red rocks that are super soft and you can draw on yourself. So it, it comes in forms like that, which is a sedimentary form of, of hematite, but it also forms in uh, iron bodies and forms you call specular hematite. And in, in these instances, they actually form as, as crystals, hematite crystals. And at the Powers 2 site, there's a number of different forms. There's kind of, uh, I guess you'd call it just square cube-shaped forms of hematite. There's also colloidal hematite, which kind of looks like cauliflower. Mm. And it's this really high-quality silver mineral that streaks red. So, so it's literally a magic trick is the way I often put it, where you, you could pick up a rock that's silver to the visual field, but then when you draw on yourself with it, it comes out this really lustrous silvery red. Nice. And so it, it's, it's basically paint. And you can get paint out of a lot of minerals, but uh, this particular hematite is exceptionally high quality and it has this kind of silvery sheen to it when you draw on yourself. It was actually used... Mm-hmm throughout the 70s and 80s by cosmetic companies to produce really? uh, rouge and lipstick, this, this oh, particular cool. hematite source. So it just has a really beautiful quality to it. When you excavate there, it gets all over your, your clothes and all over your skin, and it kind of gives everybody this nice radiant glow. <laughs> Everyone leaves the Powers 2 site looking a little more beautiful than they did when <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I've worked in some crazy places, but nothing that like turned me red. <laughs> yeah, that's it's one aspect of working there that I actually am happy to leave behind is you know having to uh-huh. throw away my clothes basically uh every every summer <laughs> after after working there. Yeah. All right. Well, I I don't know if you know about or want to get into the geology thing. I'm curious about how red ochre is formed because as we're gonna we'll learn a little bit later, it's not exactly common to find this. So or at least not this this type of site. So how do you know how red ochre is formed and, and like what kind of deposits it's it's actually found in? It's it's really found in every kind of geologic deposits. Any time iron basically forms an oxide it forms mm-hmm. hematite. This particular type, I, I can't get into the nuts and bolts of actually how it was formed. It, I know it was yeah. formed out of a, a what's called a ferruginous schist or an iron-rich schist. The schist that was being mined for iron ore in the historic era basically formed this hematite cap on top of it, bedrock. And that hematite cap was exposed at the surface in certain places throughout this, this valley where the Powers 2 site is. And what these foragers did was they found an exposed seam of it and and just started uh, digging into it. It's, it's soft enough that you can modify it with hand tools. So ba- basically, what I what I think, and we we don't really have a good understanding of this because most of these deposits were destroyed by the iron mining in the valley. But I suspect that a lot of this hematite was just exposed at the surface on top of this iron deposit, and foragers throughout throughout the Pleistocene and Holocene found these deposits and just started kind of chipping chipping away at it, discarding all the iron ore that was kind of interspersed with with the hematite. So I yeah. think the Powers 2 site, I should mention, is, was probably many, many hematite quarries in this valley prior to the historic era. And this mm-hmm. is really just the one that's left. This hematite probably hmm. outcropped throughout this this iron-bearing region, part of the Uplift. You say the one that's left, do you mean the rest of it was quarried out already? And it's just like... It's it's played out prehistorically. Uh, I, I suspect that it was destroyed by by iron mining. So we, we actually oh, have, right. we we have historic accounts in newspapers of of iron miners discovering these basically caverns where they would crawl inside them and they were finding stone tools and antlers and, and uh, actually pots and things like that. Wow! And 
I think that those sorts of features are probably all over this iron mining district, but but basically anywhere iron has been discovered in the Western United States has been mined for economic purposes in the historic era. And most of the evidence for the, the, the native use of that, that mineral has probably been obliterated through, through modern iron mining uh, industrialism. Sounds like they're all just artifacts sitting on the uh, mantles <laughs> of various ranchers probably across the area at this point, if any at all are left. <laughs> yeah, I'd imagine so. Yeah. 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 So kind of rounding out this segment, it mentions in one of the articles that we read related to this story, there hasn't been hardly any hematite or red ochre quarries, you know, prehistoric actual quarries found in North America. But is that just because it's all been destroyed by iron mining and there were probably lots of them, like you said, but it's, but they've all just been destroyed by iron mining. Or do you know of any, I don't know if there's any protected areas that might have iron rich deposits that are say within older national parks before they really got to, you know, destroying them. <laughs> that Maybe we can uh, go it, find some more quarries. That's a really, that's a really good point. I, I suspect it's true. I mean, if iron deposits like this are, are rare in general, I mean, when you find them, okay. they're extraordinarily economically important, right? You have mm. iron districts in, uh, I guess it's in, in the iron ranges in Minnesota. And then you have this one in, in Hartville Uplift of Wyoming. There's some in Arizona. Basically, all of them have been, have been utilized. And the few uh, prehistoric hematite quarries we found are in places where you are not likely to destroy them. So underwater, for instance, in the Yucatan. Oh, yeah. Or ex- extremely remote locations of, of Chile. And Peru, and then the Powers Two site, like I said, just barely escaped destruction of this giant iron mining district. So yeah, I, I suspect that the historic utilization of iron uh, in the industrial era had a huge impact on why we're not finding more of these sorts of features in the Western. Right. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's a good point to take a break, and we'll come back on the other side and keep talking about hematite. And we'll find out a little bit more about it on the other side. Back in a minute. Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. Hey everyone, Chris Webster from the APN here. We have used a number of solutions for recording our podcast with interesting people from around the world. None have worked better than Zencaster. For the last several years, we've been using Zencaster for high quality recordings that are easy to do and put little to no stress on the guest. And now Zencaster has high quality video and even automatic transcription. So click the link in the show notes or head over to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use the code TAS to get 30% off your first three months of the pro plan. If you're starting a podcast anytime soon, it's totally worth it. Again, click the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months. And they even give a little back to us when you do. Keep this conversation going by joining our members only Slack team. There's always vibrant conversations going on over there between members and hosts about the topics we're podcasting about and more. Also get access to our back catalog of bonus material and ad-free shows. You get all this for $7.99 a month or less than $80 US per year if you get the annual subscription. Support archaeological education and outreach by supporting the APN. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for details. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 178. And we are talking with Dr. Spencer Pelton, Wyoming state archaeologist. I think I forgot to mention that. I mentioned it in your bio, but that's pretty cool. So <laughs> talking about this hematite quarry that we read about in the linked paper. Be sure to check the show notes if you haven't seen that. The paper is sort of paywalled, but there are plenty of articles that are riffing off the paper that you can basically get the gist from. So We found it in the Smithsonian article. So we'll make sure and link to that one too, because you can really get the idea of the the article there or the paper. Yeah. 
Indeed. Indeed. So speaking of dating, you mentioned that this was, well, the article mentioned that this was the oldest sites of its kind in North and South America. How is this actually dated? Is it relatively dated with artifacts found nearby or can you actually date hematite? I wasn't sure about that. I know iron probably not, but I wasn't sure about any sort of exposure dating or something like that. Well, luckily this site is full of digging tools that were made out of bone and antler. So mm-hmm. this, the site, the site's just full of organic materials that we we could use to radio carbon date. And thanks to my colleague, Lorena Becerra Valdivia at Oxford University, she was able to get enough collagen out of enough bones that we got a really solid age ring on the site, which is Mm -hmm. about 12,800 years ago to about 12,000 years ago, plus uh, a later undated component where the bone preservation wasn't quite up to snuff. Primarily, we're dating the ribs of bison and tickless that were used to quarry hematite at the site. So directly dating the activity at the site is not not much of a better target event, so to speak, than, than you could get than, uh, than a tool used at the site to quarry hematite. And it gave us a really, really great age range that basically spans the very end of the, the Clovis cultural complex through the Younger Dryas, what we often associate with the Folsom complex here in the Plains. And then there's a, a second occupation associated with what we call the Hell Gap complex. It's kind of a stemmed point complex that you might know about from the Great Basin that right. probably existed about 11,600 years ago, something like that. We know that based on dating at the nearby Hell Gap site. Well, this seems like a good moment to kind of talk about the actual artifact assemblage on the site, because as you mentioned, we've got, you know, the Clovis points and the other seven points that give you a good relative dating idea. But then also I'm really interested in these these carbon-based tools that you're able to date that they were used for quarrying and like what those tools look like and how they potentially would have been using them to actually mine the the red ochre. These are really simple tools, but tools nonetheless. They're, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a great faunal assemblage, but it's not a faunal assemblage that uh, faunal analysts typically deal with. You know, Typically, faunal analysis is focused on subsistence. You study the bones mm. and archaeological sites to get some sense of what people were eating on the site. Here, mm-hmm. the funnel assemblage is more or less focused on long and pointy things. Uh, <laughs> and those, long and, those long and pointy things were used to pry up rocks out of the quarries, large iron ore nodules. They were mm-hmm. also used to chip into the hematite deposit. This hematite mineral is extremely soft. You can modify it with, with hand tools. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's soft enough that you can modify it with pieces of rib, green fractured pieces of long bones that look like they were used to basically chip chip into the into the deposit because of extremely blunted ends. And then also a lot of antlers, big, big antlers, probably of deer, although some of it overlaps with elk. Uh, it pr- probably not elk, because elk were uh, probably not yet in south of the ice sheets at this time. Uh, okay. So that's that's really the quarry assembly. It's, a, it's an assemblage of long, pointy, faunal elements. And then there's this whole other assemblage of, of chipstone. Cool. Wow. That's really neat. I'm assuming there was just while we're on the funnel assemblage, I'm assuming with the amount of time people probably spent there doing that, that there is corresponding maybe hearth features or anything like that that might have you know, the remains of animals they actually did eat in there, just out of curiosity. Absolutely no evidence of fire on the site at all. Actually. Really? Wow. Uh, wow. No, no burned flakes, no charcoal, no mm. hearth features, nothing. So yeah. it, it looks like this was not really a place where people were actually cooking meals. And, and okay. eating. That's uh, again another line of evidence to suggest maybe there was a pretty substantial campsite nearby that either has sure. been discovered mm-hmm. or has been destroyed. Yeah, it was kind of a surprise to us. And we were obviously really hoping for charcoal, but luckily there was enough collagen preserved in the bone mm-hmm. to get radiocarbon dates out of the tools themselves. Oh, cool. So when you mentioned that you use like the collagen that's left in the antlers and the bones to do the dating, that was that was kind of interesting and new information for me because I was just assuming they were burned. So just maybe touch briefly on what that looks like, what that process is and how you can use carbon dating in the same way that you would on burned artifacts. Yeah, this is very much better directed towards Lorena. She's she's really the radiocarbon right. guru, but... Uh, mm-hmm. You know, traditionally, archaeologists were really skeptical of dating bone because they were consistently getting bad dates out of it. You know, mm-hmm. Bone collagen used to be very easily contaminated by exogenous carbon. So you would, a bone would get buried and then you'd get you know, humic acids from soils leaching into the collagen. You'd get 
all sorts of other stuff just contaminating the actual mm-hmm. material that you're dating. But lab techniques have advanced substantially in the last decade or so. One of those techniques is ultrafiltration, where you actually, it's a physical sort of pretreatment technique where you filter out carbon that isn't part of the bone. Mm-hmm. There's another, another technique called XAD collagen that's, that's used a lot. And then some people go to the extent of actually isolating individual amino acids from the proteins in, in the collagen and dating those so that you know for a fact there's actually absolutely no carbon in that, in that material that's not associated with the life of that animal. Hmm. So right. there's a lot of techniques. Oxford, Oxford's basically the best at it in the world. They use techniques that are at the cutting edge of radiocarbon dating. And so I was lucky enough to, to meet Lorena's acquaintance and have her do the dating with some of the best techniques and one of the best labs that exists in the world. That's really cool. Wow. So I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned the date ranges, you know, about 800 years, give or take for the, for the date ranges on this. I'm wondering if we know why it was abandoned, if there's theories as to why they didn't continue there, because, you know, there might not be evidence on that side, but given your knowledge of, you know, Wyoming, you know, paleo Indian prehistory, do we have any ideas as to why this activity may have died out at that spot or maybe just culturally they forgot where it was? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I, I personally think it's because the the pile of gory tailings that they created as a result of the hematite just got to be too thick. Um, oh, really? As they're, as they're mining this mineral, they're creating an enormous amount of, of tailings, of mine tailings. Yeah. And it's almost completely comprised of iron, just iron ore. And so, mm-hmm. so the, the mat of mine tailings that we excavated through, for instance, is two meters thick. And it took Jeez. four years, uh, say 50 days of excavation to get through that in our small excavation. Mm-hmm. I, I think that basically you, you reach this point of diminishing returns where it becomes too challenging to reach the pure mineral deposit because you're having to excavate deeper and deeper every every time you go back to the site. So you're, yeah. you're essentially, by the, the act of quarrying the mineral, you're making it harder and harder year by year to reach that mineral again. Mm-hmm. So okay. I suspect they, they, they mined this quarry until it was just too difficult to do. It wasn't worth the time anymore, basically, of diminishing returns issue, and then probably moved on to another exposed seam of hematite uh, somewhere else in the valley. Okay. Wow. So I'm wondering, it also mentioned in the article that the, again, we mentioned before that this is the oldest one that's been found in the Americas, well, in North America. What is the next oldest site that's actually been conclusively dated? I'm curious as to how far apart they are. Uh, it's a pretty close tie at this point between the sites in Quintana Roo, the Yucatan Peninsula, Mexico, mm-hmm. and then the site down in Chile, San Ramon 15, which also has mm-hmm. dates uh, dating back to around 12,000 years ago. So basically, okay. it follows a pretty clear, you know, just like a lot of other archaeological evidence, it follows kind of a colonization pattern where first stuff shows up in North America and then stuff in Central and South America is just slightly later. So these sites in Central and South America are happening several hundred years after excavations at Powers Two occurred. So they're they're all pretty they're all pretty old, pretty dang old, uh, all of them, but um, just slightly later south. Right. And when did you say it seemed like they had abandoned quarrying at Powers Two? I'm getting all the dates meshed around in my head right now. <laughs> Yeah, I could, let me go through the sequence of occupation real quick, I guess. So there, there was this yeah. really primary phase of use that occurred between the end of Clovis and kind of 12,000 years ago. So about 800 years or so. And that comprises really the vast majority of artifacts at the site. That's when this massive uh, mat of mm-hmm. quarry tailings built up and all these quarry tools accumulated, stone tools and all this stuff. It looks like there's a bit of a hiatus after that. Maybe it was abandoned for at least 100, maybe several hundred years. And then these stemmed point folks came back around 11,600 years ago and dug pits mm. through mm. the prior quarry tailings of those early Paleo-Indian occupations to reach the hematite. Those occupations seem to be far more ephemeral than the earlier ones. They, they were really confined to these individual quarry pits. And then after mm. that, we have, we have no evidence. So a lot of what we call the late Paleo-Indian complexes, Wyoming, Cody complex and stuff after that, no evidence of that stuff at the Powers II site. So in the entire span of use, really from about 12,800 to about 11,600 years ago with a, a bit of a hiatus in the middle. Interesting. Okay. So 
does that mean that later peoples just didn't really use red ochre or is it they didn't know about it or maybe you don't know? I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah, they certainly did. I mean, we, we find hematite in, in sites of basically every age in Wyoming. Yeah. Uh, okay. What they did was they, they probably just moved on to other quarries um, mm. that were a little easier to access. Easier guess, to get. Right. Right. Yeah. Yet found. Yep. Gotcha. It always makes you wonder though, right? Like we find something like this that was just extensively used. They they mined the heck out of it for hundreds of years. And it is the earliest example, but I mean it just you just know that there's earlier ones out there, right? Like this can't be the first. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kinda like, where the heck is all the rest of the stuff? And I, I always wonder too, you know, for so long, archaeologists and, and even when, you know, I was back in school learning this stuff, they're like, Oh, well, you know, people first came into the Americas twelve to fourteen thousand years ago and we're just going to ignore the fact that they came into both North and South America relatively simultaneously at about that time and just kind of forget about the fact that, you know, we're telling you that. And it just, it just tells me that, you know, some of these much older sites that we're finding, you know, there's got to be some, there's got to be something there and there's got to be older sites. And, and it took longer than we think to actually populate North and North and South America, longer than the current evidence suggests, I guess I would say, but it's just, I don't know. It's got my mind spinning on all these different things when we talk about sites that are this old. Well, yeah. If there, if any of the proposed older sites use hematite, we haven't found it yet. I think really the, the earliest example of hematite use in the Americas is, well, actually I'm not sure if there's, if there's any hematite in the sites in Alaska. Mammoth and Swan Point, some of those really old sites up there. But mm-hmm. at least out sure. of the ice sheets, the early the earliest site with hematite, and it's certainly the the Anzac burial, the Clovis Age burial from Montana. And uh, it's mm-hmm. still an open question as to what hematite source was used to coat to coat that body, the the Anzac burial. I really want it to be the Powers Two site, but of course, there's iron mining districts in Montana as well, especially around right. the and any evidence up there of, of uh, hematite quarrying by Paleo Indians almost certainly have been destroyed unless, you know, somebody just hasn't found it yet. Okay. Well, I think that's actually a good point to take our final break and then come back on the other side because I want to talk a little more broadly about hematite and, well, and or, you know, maybe we'll just call it red ochre, whatever you want to call it, (laughs) hematite or red ochre use in the world and a little more about the Paleo-Indian period in the United States or what became the United States. So we'll talk about that on the other side of the break. Back in a minute. So you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Did you know we have lots of great shows on the Archaeology Podcast Network? Head over to arcpodnet.com and you can see all the shows that are currently producing podcasts. Scroll down a bit more and you'll see some great shows from the past that still have great content. Search for your favorite shows on your podcasting app or listen right on the page at arcpodnet.com. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, the third and final segment of episode 178. And we are talking to Dr. Spencer Pelton about the hematite site found in Wyoming and has been in the news recently. So I wanted to, again, talk a little bit more broadly about hematite and feel feel free to say, hey, that's not my expertise. <laughs> but I'm just wondering, because we have a we have a slightly broader audience for this podcast is listened to by people around the world. So I'm just wondering some some general information about red ochre. And how long do you know that people have been using it just in the world? Like, what are some of the earliest sources or uses, I guess, recorded uses of hematite or red ochre? And if you know what the oldest source is on the entire planet, that'd be cool. Yeah, I don't know the specifics on a lot of that, I'll say, but I do know it's the oldest yeah. form of symbolic expression that exists in the mm. lineage. Uh, it's mm-hmm. been associated, I think, fairly convincingly with 
archaic hominins, Neanderthals. Mm-hmm. Uh, we find it in the earliest archaic Homo sapiens in Sub-Saharan Africa. I think uh, in my recollection is some of the earliest evidence for it is in some of those uh, coastal sites on the eastern coast of Africa, some of those mm-hmm. caves. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they've identified the actual sources for any of those uh, in right. deposits. I, I don't, don't think they have, but could be wrong about that. I, okay. I think in general, you know, the earliest the earliest hematite artifact that comes to mind is this weird hatched piece of hematite found in a cave in South Africa. And it's just this kind of rudimentary design etched into a piece of hematite. Uh, but then soon thereafter, mm. you know, we find it being used in cave art throughout Western Europe on mm. anatomically modern human dispersal into, into Eurasia. We find it associated with burials soon after that. And then it just kind of accompanies global human dispersal. Wherever humans went, it seems like they latched on to sources of red paint shortly after arriving wherever wherever they landed in Australia, Eurasia. And then basically as soon as humans get to uh, the Western Hemisphere, they seem to latch on to it as well. I could talk a little bit about the uses, I guess. Uh, a lot of people have, have uh, proposed uses, both you know, pragmatic and, and ritual for, for hematite. I think it pretty much fulfilled whatever uses people wanted it to fulfill. We find it in basically every context in the Paleo-Indian record, from animal kills to campsites to burials to caches, basically any form of archaeological site that you can imagine, people used red paint in it. Right. So to, to my eyes, that looks like it fulfilled a lot of different purposes. I, I've often joked about it being kind of the snake oil of the, the Pleistocene world, <laughs> where you can just put it up, put it on anything, and uh, it's just kind of a, a general source of, of power in the world. You can make it do whatever you want it to do. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that's that's kind of how I, how I think about it in, in conversations with, with modern Native Americans in Wyoming. It seems to be kind of how they still use it too. It's just kind of a little bit of a little bit of gives you a little bit of oomph to get out of bed and get out into the world in cases like when you send your kid off to school for the first first time, things like that. Yeah. You know, I think I can infer the answer to this based on what you said, but I just want to put it out there. There there are some things that archaeologists look for and we find on sites that that are really helpful like obsidian has a chemical fingerprint from the volcano that or or lava flow or whatever that produced the obsidian right and and we know if we find a piece of obsidian we can cut a piece out of that and analyze it we know it pretty much exactly where it came from maybe not the exact quarry but at least the source of obsidian where that came from does hematite have any sort of chemical signature like that, that, that has been identified or are we close to, do you think coming up with something like that? Cause I know, you know, this is based around iron deposits and things like that, but I'm just wondering if it's unique enough locally that we can, we can put a chemical fingerprint on it. Yeah, it does. But we're at the very start of trying to, of trying to figure that problem out. People have been trying yeah. to source hematite now for, for quite a while, probably two or three decades. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's mostly iron. So when you do geochemical analysis on it, it's mostly iron. But there are trace and minor elements in there that seem to discriminate between sources. Uh, so we've we've done one hematite sourcing study. We did it for the Pearl Clovis site, which is uh, just about eighty miles away from the Powers Two site. Mm-hmm. That site, we in one of our excavation blocks, discovered a pretty substantial red ochre stain in sediments, there, and it was interspersed with actual nodules of, of hematite. Looks to be maybe the floor of a house um, that, mm. that was occupied after this, wow. this uh, Clo- Clovis foragers killed and butchered a mammoth. Uh, but we did source that hematite to to Powers too. It wasn't a perfect match, and we don't have a great kind of background comparative sample of hematite sources throughout the West to compare it against. But it seemed pretty conclusive that people quarried hematite at the Powers Two site, probably put it in a sack or something, and hiked it about eighty miles away would have ended up in this Clovis mammoth kill uh, just up oh, that's the cool. Platte River from the Powers 2 site. Uh, so we are we are at the beginning stages of this. Uh, you know, in that study, I cited uh, a bunch of different Paleo-Indian sites of the age of Powers 2 that have hematite in them. Mm-hmm. There's probably about 20 of them at this point, all throughout the Northern Plains and Rocky Mountains. I know it's a long-term goal to try to figure out if if and how much of that hematite actually came from Powers 2 and, and what came from some other source. Uh, and I should mention that hematite coming from, say, like a sedimentary context uh, should have a very different geochemical signature than the hematite we're finding in Powers 2, which is coming out of mm. uh, basically plutonic rock, really old iron deposit. So it should be possible to discriminate 
between those two. And and if that the hematite was formed at really different times in the geologic time scale, say iron outcrops in Butte, Montana versus that that outcrops here in Wyoming, it should have really different trace elements present in it. But yeah, we're gonna we'll, we'll figure it out. It's it's a difficult problem. <laughs> It seems like it all comes down to resolution of the sample and how much you can really get into the fine nitty gritty details of, of what makes up a, a clump of hematite, so to so to speak. Because you know, as people, anybody who's ever looked at just a rock formation before, I mean, there's not just the the one layer. There might be a discrete layer that you can pick out when you're looking at something, but there's so much stuff around it and above it, and the mixing that takes place, and and the the sheer amount of time it takes to, you know, to so to speak, make some sort, some types of rocks and, and, and deposits. It's just the leaching of other things into it. Yeah. You would think that unless it's just a lot of things and it's too mixed around, like one source has a lot of different chemical characteristics. That's what makes it really tough, right? You almost need that, that smoking gun in the one source that says, well, you know, this has a little bit of this in it, but none of the other sources around here do. So, you know, there's our, there's our fingerprint. Yeah, and it's also just a matter of finding the sources. I mean, it's a, it's it's really yeah, intuitive yeah. to find ones that are associated with iron deposits because those iron sure. deposits are really really well known. But there's hematite forms in basically every type of rock, and there's a lot of rock in Wyoming exposed. So you kind of have to just lock into finding it at the time, yeah. especially if it's if it's just forming mm-hmm. in kind of these localized patches and sedimentary rock. So it's going to take a pretty big. It's going to take a lot of miles of driving, probably, and not just mm-hmm. driving in Wyoming all across the northern plains of Rockies to actually sample these individual localities and get a good idea of the, the range of variation, the geochemistry of this stuff. Well, kind of along those lines, Rachel and I have both worked on, you know, projects in Nevada where we're doing seismic monitoring, you know, following around the big thumper trucks where they're, they're doing all the mapping subsurface to, to figure out what the, the different deposits are. I mean, most of those are looking for gold and silver in, in a lot of places in, in Nevada, but they're finding a lot of other stuff as well, right? They're, they're coming up with these geological subsurface maps. So along those lines, I mean, somebody with the amount of iron mining that's taking place up there and the other mining, there must be some geological mapping resources that could say, hey, you know, here's this here's this iron layer and here's the the, the portion of it that, you know, the characteristics that are more likely to produce this hematite and maybe, you know, look at that geologically where it could be outcropping and then see if there's other archaeological sites. There's any any thought to doing some work around that? Uh, that's, that's a great idea. I mean, basically, I've just been approaching it through looking at geologic mapping with mining industry has this enormous just cache of yeah. data that they sit on. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, I mean, I'll give it to you. Yeah, it's a lot of it's <laughs> proprietary, right? So like anything, right. Done, anything done out of the private sector is kind of a whole different ballgame. I mean, they yeah. have so much data from seismic projects especially, but getting a hold of it and being able to get it to a format that archaeologists can actually use is kind of a different story. So mm-hmm. yeah, it might take making some of those connections though. I mean, it, it's a, it'd be yeah. a good resource in general to have to be able to have some of those data at our disposal. Right. It sounds like a whole dissertation for somebody. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I was really drawn to this story because hematite is so interesting to me because it's not it's nothing that's required for life for living right it's it's art it's decoration it's painting it's just ritual i know that word has is loaded but it there's so much in it and none of it is required to live and it's interesting that this might be kind of filling in some of the details about paleo indian people that we didn't know before is that kind of the conclusion that you are coming to as well or is it just broadening that picture of these people i i think so to some extent it you know it is interesting and i don't think anybody systematically studied this but it does seem to be a lot more abundant in the earliest sites in north america than, mm. than in sites of later age and in my mind that seems to suggest that uh, at some symbolic significance to the earliest americans that didn't to, to later americans part of that might be it's used in, in hive tanning, so a very kind of prosaic use of it. Mm. Red ochre is used a lot in the tanning process, at least in, mm. in, in ethnographic accounts. Oh, okay. It's, it's, it's suggested to have some sort of antiseptic properties that would mm. uh, keep the hides from going bad, from getting rot, basically. And also, it makes your clothing red. It makes it really nice and, and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, and at a time in the late Pleistocene, when people are coming out of, out of the Ice Age, they're probably wearing a lot more clothing, say, the, the Plains Indians of the historic era. So part mm. of it might be that, just the, the process of tanning 
and sewing clothing, a hematite played some crucial role in that, that process. Mm. So that, that's mm. a very prosaic explanation, but it was used throughout the entire the entirety of prehistory, at least in the northern plains and Rockies, often in ritualistic contexts. It shows up in mm-hmm. rock art and in burials and things like that. So it certainly played that that role as well. It's just that in the Paleo Indian period, we also find it in like the floors of houses and in very kind of domestic, profane contexts. I guess so. It seems to have fulfilled yeah. kind of a wider range of social functions at that time. Right. Interesting. It might just be too that as you go through time and people culturally evolved, for lack of a better way to say that, that the use of you know the use of this, maybe it didn't lessen necessarily, but it got more diluted as people had more and more ways to express themselves and, and more cultural tools at their disposal, so to speak. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great, it's a great point. It's, it's kind of like the low hanging fruit of symbolic expression, I guess. Mm. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. It's, yeah. it's the oldest and kind of the most imbued with meaning probably somewhere deep in our brains yeah. and we don't even really consciously recognize. Right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So as we're finishing up this podcast, can you give us a, a little bit of a broad overview, your, your sort of elevator pitch of the Paleo-Indian period, you know, day ranges and kind of what characterizes the people that lived in this in this period in North America? Yeah, I can do that. I'll do it from the perspective of Wyoming, which is very much a, sure. a uh, classic model of the Paleo-Indian occupation of the Americas, I'll say. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, at least from Wyoming, the earliest sites we have in this state date to the Clovis time period. The oldest site we have is probably the Luttrell Mammoth site. It's about 12,900 years old or so, just after okay. 13,000 mm-hmm. years old. Uh, we have very few Clovis sites. I think it's probably because Wyoming is about the last place in the country that you want to live. And so it's the last <laughs> place that, that people <laughs> colonized. Uh, it's very cold, windy, and dry here. And it's not the type of place that it's easy to live as a, as a subsistence forager. Mm-hmm. After that, we get in the high plains and Rocky Mountains. We have what's called the Folsom Cultural Complex, which is considered by many to be kind of the pinnacle of Stone Age technology globally. It's 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 defined by the Folsom Point, which is this really beautiful, thin, fluted point. These nice, long, thin flakes taken out of the bottom. That's really one of the more famous things that this region's known for. Then you get the Stem Point stuff, so things that we call Agate Basin and Hell Gap points. These are all from Clovis on through, primarily bison hunters, although Clovis also was able to kill extinct species of Pleistocene megafauna like Manus and Macedon. Mm. And then on through the Paleo-Indian period to what we call the Cody Complex and some of these later kind of more regional terms, it's really dominated by uh, hunting bison. We have very little evidence of people hunting anything else until about 10,000 years ago when people start kind of moving up to the high elevations of the Rocky Mountains and targeting things like bighorn sheep and deer and, and uh, pronghorn antelope, things like that. There's a pretty mm. simple story here, actually. It's, uh, you know, people show up just shy of 13,000 years ago. They hunt out the last of the mammoths uh, by about 12,700 years ago. And then from then on out, it's very much a bison specialist economy. Yeah. Just every site that we find is just full of large bison and ticklish bones and very little else. Okay. All right. Well, is there anything else you'd like us to know about the Powers 2 site that we didn't get a chance to ask? Maybe something something from the paper that wasn't so focused on hematite that's interesting nonetheless. The other notable part about the site, really, that we haven't talked about extensively is just the, num- the number of stone tools that are in the site, especially yeah. the, number of spe- the number of spear points. We've probably found around 200 Paleo Indian points at this site, and it's, it's one of the largest spear point assemblages that's ever been discovered. It's just remarkable. That's huge. And that was really the thing that, you know, kind of was the head scratcher for archaeologists for a long time. And I think coming out of this, what we can safely say is that people were just sitting on the site, not just mining hematite, but also producing and repairing weaponry uh, to to a large Mm -hmm. extent. So it makes us think that it was kind of just basically a hangout for hunters where hunters would come. They would dig this. They would dig hematite out, which is pretty strenuous activity. At the same time, they were taking in nodules of chipstone and making spear points. They were discarding the stuff spear points, repairing weaponry, preparing to, to go hunt again. Mm. It's, it's something that really sets it apart from the other small number of other hematite quarries that have been discovered in the Americas, which are very much just solely focused on getting the mineral. As opposed to that, yeah. we have evidence of people actually spending a little bit of time here and doing what Pleistocene foragers did, which is do a lot of flint mapping. All right. Well, and that reminds me of just one final question, because you mentioned the artifact assemblage and 
it made me think, because you mentioned early on the the drought in excavation there because of the land dispute. Who owns the site now and where's this stuff going to end up? Uh, the site's owned by a guy named John Voigt, not not the actor. <laughs> I was going to say. He <laughs> was a local, local guy that decided a few years ago that he wanted to try to mine iron out of, out of the Sunrise town site again. He thought that iron might become economically viable to mine again in the United States. So he bought this abandoned mine and associated town site. And he's just an extraordinarily nice person with a really deep interest for history cool. and prehistory and, and was amenable to people. Uh, returning to the site to do excavations. The artifacts themselves are being managed by a nonprofit organized by a guy named George Siemens, who's a archaeologist in Wyoming, does independent excavations. Mm-hmm. So all the artifacts are being stored on site in an old YMCA building hmm. that was dates back to about 1920. Huh. It was associated with use of the, the Sunrise Town site. So George has a little museum set up in that YMCA now, and the artifacts are being stored there. Access to them is managed by by George. Cool. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, thank you, Spencer. This has been really fantastic. I hope people had a chance to learn not only a little bit more about what red ochre is and and hematite, especially for the for the you know non scientific crowd out there, at least non archaeologist crowd. I don't think they realize how often this kind of thing is found, and to to find a site like this and and get a, a little bit of an origin story you know at least for that area is really cool and we really appreciate you coming on to talk about this yeah i really appreciate the invitation and thanks for the good interview definitely all right thanks a lot and we'll see everybody next week bye Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. This is Chris Webster, founder of the APN and one of the chief editors. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you want to keep the conversation going and support us along the way, go to arcpodnet.com slash members. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And thanks for listening. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com slash audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com slash audio. That's carshield.com slash audio. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 